So welcome to the May event of AWAWA on 20, 20 years of East Timor independence. Who will like to start the ball rolling? Sue will, over to you, Sue. Thank you, thank you. Uh, is that on? Yeah, are you hearing me? Yep, okay. Okay. So yes, well, I'm, I'm delighted. It, it's extraordinary, actually, that in our membership, we have uh, three people who have all have an active part in the, in the path of East Timor to independence, um, and that we're able to come together to share that, share that information this evening. And I'm uh, sort of starting because my involvement with it was, was sort of at the beginning, at the early stages. And then John's going to speak next because his involvement was at a later stage. And then Brendan's going to finish up because his involvement was at a later stage again and in more varied ways. So you'll get the sort of consecutive story in a way from us. So my involvement started when my first posting um, with external affairs was as um, a third secretary and later second secretary in our embassy in, in Lisbon, in Portugal. And just before, uh, before leaving, um, uh, before leaving Canberra, I'd had an interview with the secretary of the department, and he said, oh, Sue, you're going to love Portugal, you know, great country, lovely architecture, interesting history, good food, lovely wine, I'm sure you'll enjoy yourself. So I said, well, that's all very well, secretary, but um, what about the work? He said, work, don't you worry your pretty, pretty little head about that, he said. Would you believe this? Um, he said, no, no, no. He said, we, we've got an, an immigration operating out of, out of Lisbon and we need an embassy to sort of cover for that. So that's what you're going to do. So you just go and enjoy yourself. Well, I was a bit pissed off at that because I was a bit ambitious and I thought I was going to do great things in, in the foreign service as, uh, as we all, as all did. So when I got to Lisbon, I started to look around to see what might be around for me to get my teeth into uh, of interest. And I discovered um, what, what was of interest to Australia and of interest to me was um, Portugal's colonial policy and not only policy, but action. Because at that stage, it was the age, if you remember, of great um, giving away, the European powers uh, giving away or sending to independence all of their colonies. And even Australia, we'd had uh, Papua and New Guinea as two separate colonies, dependencies, and we had got moved to move them to an independent status. And so Portugal was really the last uh, European power that still had colonies. And it had colonies in Africa, as it had Guinea-Bissau, and it had Angola, and it had Mozambique. And it had in, in Asia, it had Macau. Uh, and in, in, on the subcontinent, it had had Goa, um, and it had uh, various offshore islands. And uh, in Africa, it, as I said, it had those, those colonies. So the, all those were really still um, dependent on Portugal, and many of them wanted independence. And so there were independence movements that had started up, particularly in the African states. Oh, and I forgot to mention East Timor, of course, which is the most important thing for Australia of, of, of all the colonies. So they had East Timor, and which at the time was a quiet little place where people went and rode horses and had a nice posting. And, you know, was, nobody took any notice of East Timor, really. So, so that's so I thought, right, colonial policy is interesting. And it was interesting because um, the, there was, in, in, in Africa, in Angola and in Mozambique and in Guinea-Bissau, there were active uh, organizations wanting independence and resisting the Portuguese colonization. And the governance of all the colonies pretty well was provided by, uh, by the Portuguese through their military. 
So there were military leaders and military commanders who were representing Portugal and providing the governance in most of their most of their colonies. And because of the war in war in, Af in the African states, particularly, um, Portugal's military were getting pretty fed up with this, because they were the ones who were taking um, all the all, all the danger and all the damage, whilst they, the, the, the government sat quietly in Lisbon drinking wine and having a nice time and going to Fado restaurants. But the the, Af the, Af the military was actually carrying carrying the load, and so. There started then to be a movement within uh, the, the military, um, led by General Spinola, who had been heading the Portuguese presence in Guinea-Bissau, uh, led by him to say, look, it's time that we got out of the, we gave these, these colonies independence, it's time we stopped being colonial masters. And when he came back to, to Lisbon from his posting, he said these things publicly. Uh, and the government, of course, was not terribly happy with that. So the government dismissed him. Well, that, of course, really got under the skin of the junior and middle ranking officers. He was their hero, and he actually embodied and uh, epitomized their own wishes. And so the, the junior officers actually mounted a coup. And we went, we had in Portugal on the 25th of April, uh, 1974, we had the, the Carnation Revolution. It was called the Carnation Revolution uh, because the people rose up in support of the military and thought this was a great idea. They were all for independence for the colonies and, uh, and for the coup because Caetano, who had been re, uh, running Portugal at this time, was a, a fascist thug and they were all fed up of it. And so he was actually no loss, and people were quite happy to hand over to a new leadership, which the leadership was uh, made up of members of the socialist and communist parties. And that struck a chord in, in Portugal. Now, in the meantime, I had come to the end of my posting in Portugal just before these wonderful events happened. And uh, I'd been on my way home to Australia, and I'd, I'd stayed with friends in in uh, Angola and in Mozambique, and I'd been talking to my army friends. And it was very clear to me, even before I left Lisbon, but even more so when I was going through the colonies, that there was, there was change afoot. So I, was, I wasn't surprised when the revolution happened. It had been a question of, of when. And the day it happened was the first day that I resumed duty in the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, Department of External Affairs. Um, I'd finished my posting in, in Lisbon and I was now home. And so I was on, they put me naturally enough on the Europe desk where my first task was to deal with the question of what was happening in Portugal. Uh, and so I was the, the, you know, the freshest one home um, from the posting. Um, the, so the, really the only person in the department who had immediate experience of Portugal and what was going on there. And uh, as uh, some of you will know already, um, on day two of that, um, the, we got a message in the department and a fellow branch head came to me and said, Sue, the prime minister wants someone uh, from the department to go and coach him and, and tell him, brief him, tell him what's going on. And he said he didn't want some old fuddy-duddy who doesn't really know. He wanted someone who really knew. So, Sue, take yourself off to Parliament House through the Rose Gardens and go and talk to the prime minister. Well, I was a very young officer at that stage. I'd just come back from my first posting. Um, I think by that stage I was a second secretary. Um, but that was what I had to do. So I sort of 
you know, hitched down my mini skirt and made sure my hair was put up properly and made sure my, lip, my lipstick was straight and my high heels were all right. And I sort of tripped off through the Rose Garden to Parliament House. And some of you have heard this story already because um, so I was ushered into the presence of the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister boomed at me and he said, Susan, he said, what's going on in Portugal and what does it mean for Australia? And what should we do about it? Gough Whitlam, if you hadn't picked it up already. He was our prime minister at the time. So those were the questions. And I, so I answered those questions to the best of my ability. And he seemed to be happy with that. And he was very so nice to me for the rest of my career, which was, which was a good thing. But anyway, that was the, that I told him what was going on. And what, in fact, then, of course, started was then in East Timor, they got wind of, of course, the news, of course, of what had happened in Lisbon. So the, so the, um, the push for independence started immediately in East Timor. And the, the East Timorese started to assemble themselves and organize themselves into parties and sort of push then for independence. And there were basically three movements, which were the most important ones at that time, which formed. Um, one was Fresselin, which wanted independence for East Timor. Um, one was Apodeti, which was the party that wanted union with Indonesia. And there was another, another party, um, UDT, which wanted a continuing association with Portugal. So there were three of them, three groups of all wanted a different future for East Timor. And each of them um, sent down delegations to Canberra to lobby the Australian government uh, to decide in their favour and to support them with, in their endeavours. And so my job, I'd learned Portuguese in Portugal, by the way, as well as learning about insurrection. Um, and so uh, for some of these, uh, these, these delegations that came down, some of them had members in them who didn't speak English. And so I was interpreting for them and also escorting them around Canberra and taking them to their various calls and, and, and really helping, helping them, which gave me quite a good insight into what was going on in, 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 in Timor. So, the, so the, government, the Australian government was faced with the issue, really, of what are we going to do about East Timor? Which side should we take? And there were deep discussions going on, of course, within foreign affairs. Um, the battle lines were drawn within the department. There were those um, who thought that, yes, a continuing association with Portugal was a good thing. And there were those in the Indonesia section who thought, oh, no, no, it makes absolute sense for them to become part of Indonesia. There is no other way to go. That's the only way. And then there were those um, who, you know, that independence was, was a, a good idea as opposed to ongoing connection with Portugal. So there were, there were divisions within the department and great arguments about what was the right way to go, do, particularly in the light of the representations made by those delegations who came down and talked to the government. So, but it was not easy for the government to come to a, a position of what was the right thing for Australia. Um, those, because there were, there were calls for things like, let's have an act of free choice in, in East Timor, such as was having, was had in West Timor to determine what was the way to West, the way to go. And there were requests for Australia to send some troops um, to help run such a consultation. There were calls for, in fact, an ongoing presence from Australian troops to maintain law and order in the territory while things were decided. And there were various requests put to the government. 
Well, now the government had absolutely no appetite whatsoever for posting Australian troops overseas again. It was not long after, after Vietnam, after all, and there was no appetite whatsoever for posting Australian troops aboard for whatever reason uh, and for whatever purpose in our immediate region. So all those, rep those requests were clearly not going to go anywhere. So the argument raged, raged a bit, um, and the, really the strong voice in the department um, were the Indonesian, the Indonesian branch. Um, for, the, for us in those days, we were waking up to the idea that Indonesia was important to us, and we had good officers who were in the Indonesia branch. We had good people who had been working in Indonesia and had come back absolutely besotted with Indonesia and convinced that Indonesia was the only useful place in the universe in our universe and we had no option really but to go with what Indonesia wanted and Indonesia wanted to have Timor within its own ranks it um, it didn't like the idea at all of independence because you had in you had in Lisbon you had a communist government and they didn't want the prospect of having a communist government in a small state on their on their borders they'd had experience uh, before of uh, combating communism in Southeast Asia. And that didn't look pretty and they weren't keen at all uh, to be involved in that. And so in their, in their view, the only way that would be acceptable would be annexation of East Timor into, into Indonesia. And that argument was very strong within the department and was uh, quite persuasive um, of the government at the time. I was involved with those who were for independence for East Timor. And uh, we argued that, in fact, it wasn't a communist government. It was only uh, a government of people who were nationalists, who wanted an, uh, a freestanding place for, for East Timor itself, independent of, 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 uh, of, of Portugal. Um, but I'm afraid we were, we were conquered by the, by the Indonesia branch. I mean, our voice was just not heard. And I was too young and inexperienced in those days, really, to know how to push the, the side of the, the case that I, uh, that, I, that I was behind. So that, 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 that was happened. But before, before that decision was made, I mean, those discussions were going on, of course. Um, they, uh, I read in the newspaper one day um, that the government was sending someone into Dili to come back and report on the situation on the ground. And that person wasn't me. And I was extremely pissed off because I regarded myself as the person who was doing all the work on East Timor. And I was the person that the department called upon. And I was the one who should have been sent. So when I remonstrated, the branch head who was involved said, well, listen, so we know you're the person we should have sent. We know that. But if we had sent you, but the public would have sent, the government isn't taking the situation seriously because they're only sending a woman in there. So I was extremely pissed off at this and made it made clear what I thought about that as well. And so a week or so later, uh, they came to me and said, um, Sue, we've decided we need to open a small office um, up in Dili, uh, up, in, up, in, up in Darwin, um, because there are refugees who are starting to come out of East Timor. Um, the governor of East Timor um, had abandoned Dili and had moved off to the island of Arturo. And he was demanding really support, requesting support from the Australian government. And um, there, were, there were things happening also. Yes, there were things happening. And Portugal was putting together a peace mission to send up um, to try and go into Dili and try and sort things out. And they were in Darwin. 
So my job was really to keep an eye on what anything that was going on and service those sort of three um, service areas, if you like. And so at um, half a day's notice, um, I had a full briefing uh, in Canberra about all our security organizations about which I had no previous knowledge. I didn't know about, uh, about ASIS, I didn't know about ASIO, I didn't know about the Signals Directorate. And all of a sudden I was briefed about all these organizations who all of whom would be using any material that I gathered and sent back to Canberra. So it was a sudden sort of education and awakening for this young officer. But off I went, went up to Darwin. And I had a, a small base, um, on a small um, office on the Air Force base. Uh, and the Air Force commander was away at the time. And the, the people who were there made me very welcomed because this was just after Cyclone Tracy. And there weren't many young women around in, in Darwin. So I was made very welcome. And I was made an honorary member of the mess. So I could actually eat in the Air Force mess. And as I say, they made me very welcome. And I had this little office and I sat down, got sort of started to get on with my work. Well, day two, they said to me, um, we've got news for you. The commander who's been away on holiday has just come back. And so when you go into your office this morning, expect to see differences. So I walked into my office and there were ropes sort of uh, roping off my office from the rest of the base. There were signs up saying entrance for authorized personnel only. Um, and it was a very hostile environment. So there was my little room in the corner with all these notices and ropes and stuff around it. So, so I sort of went in and, and uh, the, the, the commander came in and said, I can't, I just can't believe this. I can't believe that those fucking poofters in Canberra sent up. Yeah, they've got no fucking ideas. They're sending up a woman to do a man's job. Who, what the hell do they think they're doing? A great welcome for me, I have to say, yeah. So I thought, well, well, we just ignore this. I mean, he can think what he thinks, but I've got to get on with my job. And so I just said, well, very nice to meet you. Welcome back. And, um, and, uh, and just got, you know, went off and got on, got on with my work. Well, that's, this all continued for the whole period of my time in Darwin. He spent his whole time um, trying to put me down, trying to look up my skirt or down my blouse, uh, making extremely rude and sexist comments about me. And but I just, there was nobody I could tell about this. I just had to sort of suck it all up and, and get on with the job. But it was, a, it was a, not a pleasant experience. So I did, I did all that. And um, so let's say in the, in the meantime, yeah, the work, work was still going on in Canberra and I was in touch with what was going on there and refugees were coming out and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then um, one of the, the jobs I had to do was to sort of look after the peace mission, which was there, the Portuguese peace mission, which was headed by a chap called Eduardo Melagovea, who I'd actually known when I was working in Lisbon because he'd been head of the economic policy division in the foreign ministry. And I'd, I'd known him and he'd served in, in Australia before and really liked, really liked Australia. So anyway, he was up there with the peace mission. I had, I had to work with them. And then it was busy time. You know, there's lots of stuff going on and lots of things I had to do. I was also monitoring radio from, from, from East Timor, radio broadcast, so that we could pick up information on what might be going on on there. So it was a really busy time. And we worked late into the night and, and yeah, it was, but it was fun. I had my own show, you know, I was there on my own and I had all these things I had to do. And I was sort of mistress of my own time, but working with a lot of people, working with the, working with the naval commander, working with the army people, working with the army intelligence people, you know, just really re working hard and net networking hard. 
and then um, then uh, the uh, uh, I was in bed, got to bed early one night, just the, one of the few nights I got to bed early, and a phone call came in from Canberra, and it said um, we've picked up intelligence that the Indonesians are going to invade East Timor. And so we want you to send, give that information, please, to the members of the peace mission. So I said, right, I'll do that. This is about say, one o'clock in the morning. So, and because it was post-Cyclone Tracy, telecommunications in, East, in Darwin weren't too great. I mean, my hotel was the only one that had night telephone connections. The embassy in which the Portuguese peace mission was lodged um, had, didn't have night telephone. So how am I going to, so I telephoned the, um, the Commonwealth car office and I said, can you send a Commonwealth car please um, to, the, to the, um, the, the hotel where the Portuguese peace mission is staying? And will you ask them, ask the head of the mission uh, to contact me please? So that, that happened. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from my hotel receptionist downstairs saying, um, the Portuguese consul general is here because Bella Gouveia was also Consul General in Sydney. Portuguese Consul General is here and he'd like to talk to you. So I said, well, that's fine. Can you ask him to come up? She said, no, um, he wants you to come down. So I thought, well, all right, I'll do that. In the meantime, I had got dressed, you know, in this interim period. And so I went down to the lobby into the Commonwealth car, which was parked outside with the, the Consul General, Bella Gouveia, sitting in the front seat. So I leant into the car to tell him, um, the news, as I'd been instructed to do, and I noticed he was still wearing his pajamas, and uh, the blue striped pajamas, those old-fashioned blue striped pajamas with a, a drawstring around. Well, you know. Anyway, so he was sitting in the car, and so I told him the news, and he said, "Oh, well, it's very serious, Sue. I have to talk, obviously, to telephone to our embassy in Jakarta and the uh, to to Lisbon." Uh, and our embassy in Canberra, can I use the phone in your room? I said, yes, yes, of course you can. So he got out of the car and in his bare feet, padded across, across the carpet in the hotel and got into the lift with me and came up to my room. And of course, you know, the telephone is always next to the bed in these hotel rooms. And so my telephone was there. So he sort of sat on my unmade bed um, and uh, making his telephone calls. And I noticed that the drawstring had sort of given way, you know, and he was sitting there on my bed with his legs apart with the family jewels on full display. <laughs> so I sort of had to draw to his attention quietly that some bit of correction to his pajamas was required. Because in the meantime, we'd send the, sent the car back to the hotel to pick up the remaining members of the peace mission. So, um, so he pulled himself together, as it were. And uh, just in time for the rest of the peace mission who arrived, uh, the, the the army and the air force, uh, the air, army and the air force and the navy representatives from the peace mission, all in full dress uniform, uh, what two o'clock in the morning, all standing to attention in my bedroom. It was, it was a great a great scene. It should go down in some some book or other. But now, for those of you who have read my book, you will have realised that that detail's not in the book because I've, I Gouveia is a nice man, you know, and he's a friend, and he's still alive, and his wife's a nice woman, and so I didn't really want to embarrass them. So I haven't put the. This is an extra bit you're getting by by being here this evening. So there we go. So, so that so that so that happened, and so then I had the peace mission and. Uh, had to keep on looking after them. And then the next thing that happened was the Portuguese decided to send up a minister to he head up the peace mission. He was the minister for overseas territories, a man called um, Almeida Santos. 
who I knew already from my time in Portugal. So he was on his way. And in the time that then Canva said, well, you know, really you, things are developing up in Darwin and getting a bit serious. And, you know, Sue's a bit, a bit junior, really, to represent us when we've got a, a minister coming to head up the peace mission. So maybe we should send up someone more senior and it's time for Sue to come back to Canva. So someone more senior arrived who was um, a chap called... Um, uh, oh, he, he, oh God, I know him so well and his name's just gone. Anyway, he'd just come back from being ambassador in Israel. Rawdon Dalrymple is his name. And so he, he was arriving to take over, to take over my job. And my time was, was up to, to, to go, go away. But before that happened, we had one day when we were there together. And uh, that was the day that the, the Red Cross helicopter, which Australian government had given the Red Cross to use, um, had uh, come into come in, was coming in with refugees uh, and, uh, and and it had been uh, taken uh, had been hijacked by some of the refugees while it was in flight and it was on its way to to, to Darwin and so we were summoned to the Air Force base to the control room uh, where we had this information and we had to decide what should be done about it well the Air Force commander was in full flow which was he was leading the mission. And as we arrived, Rawdon said to him, look, I'm really sorry, but um, this has been uh, looked after by the cabinet in Canberra, and they've decided that foreign affairs should run this operation. So if you wouldn't mind standing aside, um, I'll take over this briefing. And the, our dear friend, the lovely, polite Air Force commander, um, told him in very few words that this was his bloody base and his bloody control room, and he would fucking well be in control of the meeting. So would we mind sitting down and shutting up? Well, so Rawdon sort of said, hey, look, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. You know, you, you, you just really can't have that. You know what I mean? The, the prime minister has decided that foreign affairs should run this meeting. He said, I don't care about the fucking prime minister. He said, this is my base and I'll decide what's happening. So fucking sit down or else I'll throw you out. And Rawdon said, look, I, I'm really sorry. I can't. So the, he, the Air Force commander took Rawdon and physically pushed him out into the, into the corridor. And um, and the, the the police commissioner was there, and Rawdon said to the police commissioner, "Would you like to come out here and talk to me?" He said, "No, sir. I think I'd better stay in the room. Thank you." And I had to decide what to do, and I decided I could go out in solidarity with him, but actually, more it'd be more useful for me to be here because this aircraft is circling, and we've got a decision to be made and has to be made quickly. So I'd better stay put. So I abandoned Rawdon. Anyway, so poor chap, he loitered in the corridor until the time that we had to then go to the air, place on the aerodrome where the plane was going to come down. We had to go there to be there for it. And uh, the Air Force commander said, you better come in my car. And Rawdon said, well, thank you very much, sir, but I think I'll take my own car. He said, you can't. He said, it's not cleared to operate on the, air, on the, on the airfield. Get in my car. So we got into his car. You know, it's a very unpleasant situation and went out to the the base. Anyway, really, that was pretty well the end of my involvement in, in, uh, on the ground of what was happening in, in East Timor. Um, I went back to Canberra. Um, they moved me to the Indonesia division out of, out of West Europe. Uh, and we really just dealt with the questions of government policy and what should do, what should be done. But the next really significant thing that happened in that time was that Gough Whitlam um, paid a visit to Jakarta and reassured the Indonesians that Australia would have no objection if Indonesia um, took over East Timor. 
um, not in those many words, but the message was, was clearly there. That was the message of the, the, the decision of the Australian government. And in the meantime, they posted me to East Berlin and I didn't do anything more about East Timor. That was somebody else's responsibility. And now we're into your area of, of expertise and experience, I think, John. Well, thanks so much, Sue. So, so Cyclone Suring, um, Darwin, how extraordinary. Having uh, followed East Timor and um, Indonesia for a number of decades, um, that was quite quite interesting in terms of um, obviously Portugal, Canberra and Darwin. And of course, 1975, we got as far as um, Gough Whitlam's ascent, if you like, to um, to what happened. And we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Indonesians arriving in East Timor in um, Dili Harbour and parachuting and, and, and basically invading was, um, was quite extraordinary. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you an early story about the first time I went there and I met, um, I was staying at the Turismo Hotel in Dili. Um, I should tell you, I was posted as first sec political to uh, Jakarta from 1990 to 93. So my experience of East Timor was some visits from Jakarta during that period. And I'll share a few uh, vignettes, if you like, about um, my experience in East Timor and, and what it might tell us about what was going on. But um, in terms of the invasion, various things happened. But the Hotel Turismo, for anyone who's been there, um, was sort of, you know, this stunningly um, almost Aggie Gray style, like Portuguese colonial hotel on the waterfront in Dili. Um, palm trees and lobster for dinner and, and all that sort of thing. But obviously, 15 years after an invasion, looking a little less kempt than, uh, than it had been. But I was chatting to one of the guys there because my pen had, had stuck in my shirt and ink had gone everywhere. And he grabbed it, he's East Timorese, and went and washed it. All the ink disappeared. And so we were chatting away in Indonesian. And I said, so you were here in 1975? He said, yes, I was here. I was right here at this hotel. And I've been here ever since. And uh, and you speak good Indonesian. Yeah, I speak good Indonesian. That's when I learned my first Indonesian word. And uh, I said, what's that? He said, Lari, which means run. Basically, parachuters coming down, people in the streets and all that sort of thing. And that 1975, the invasion was the beginning of a, of a terrible decade, terrible 15 years uh, for uh, the East Timorese population when Tens of thousands of people died directly or through starvation. And um, what happened was um, was something that we'll allude to here. But I, I need to talk about 1990 on. But just before I do that, I might just ask, who knows what Timor means? This, the country Timor, Timor, Jim. East, that's right. And uh, so Timor, Timor, as it is in Indonesian, or Timor-Leste in Portuguese, is what's known as a tautological toponym and I <laughs> I hadn't picked up on that but it's east and it goes back to pre-colonial uh, East Timorese times when Malay was spoken and the southern Philippines and parts of Indonesia, what is now Indonesia shared the same language so Timor Timor which frankly until today I hadn't realized was that too here's another one for you um, we've heard of Shanana Guzma the the uh, first president and the leader of the resistance Anyone got an idea where the name Shanana comes from? Because this was a new one on me. So Shanana is um, a, a son of East Timor, and East Timorese parents, son of Portuguese, of, of Portuguese descent too. But there was a band called, uh, there was a band called Shanana and they played at Woodstock. So 
So um, his name comes from the band Shanana, which was named after the Silhouettes group who had that doo-wop song, uh, Get a Job. So um, those of you who remember that, Get a Job, don't know. So Shanana, Shanana Guzmao comes from that. So if you ever meet him, you'll know that. He's a delightful guy and um, quite a character. So Timor, Shanana. Um, East Timor, look, really briefly, uh, you can go back 42,000 years and find um, Vedo australoids uh, coming there. So arguably one of the waves that came to Australia or certainly one of the waves. Um, one of the most important things about East Timor, I think, is that um, when you arrive in East Timor, you realise it's a Melanesian part of the world. And as I mentioned in a presentation last year, the largest Melanesian country in the world is Indonesia. So that Melanesian necklace, if you like, that, that stretches around from, from really Lombok all the way around into the Pacific is Melanesian and East Timor is part of that uh, area. And you certainly notice it when you get off the plane. So look, at the, at the risk of not going over time, um, because we've got Brendan to come and Brendan's at home with COVID, I'm getting over with COVID, but I'll just share a few vignettes, as I said, about uh, my experience uh, with East Timor. And of course, the first was about when Sue was in Darwin, I was at Melbourne University and demonstrating, you know, against nuclear weapons and things like that. And also coming to terms with the irony of a Labor government, Gough Whitlam, um, sanctioning, if you like, the invasion. So it was a, it was a case of um, self-determination, which was the view that probably Sue had and, and Ironically, defence had. Defence never thought Indonesian intervention would work. Um, and large swathes of the department didn't think that either. But it was that versus sort of the anti-colonial um, or post-colonial real politic of the Dick Wolcotts of the world and the, and the Gough Whitlams of the world. Gough used to speak of the flotsam and jetsam of empire and, you know, just folded into, folded into Indonesia. And, and so those debates raged in Canberra. There was even a small party that wanted to associate with Australia, as what Sue mentioned through. There was, there were a couple of others, a very small party that wanted to do that as well. So 1975, I was at university doing that. By 1990, I joined the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I arrived in, in, um, in Jakarta. In 1990, Philip Flood, who was our ambassador, um, responding to the fact that there are a number of allegations of human rights abuses in East Timor sent a number of us off, one after the other, to monitor what was going on as sort of a flag-waving exercise. And um, that was my first experience of arriving in well, of, of East Timor directly. And it was to be one of several trips to East Timor over the next three or four years. But I mentioned the first thing that hits you when you get off the plane is that you're in Melanesia. I suppose in 1990, the province had been opened, um, and that was... That was seen as a good thing. The Indonesians were still coming to terms with that themselves. Uh, when I got to the airport in Bali, I was stopped and asked for, um, for you know, papers, if you like. And I said, well, look, as a diplomat, we're going. We've sent a third-person note and all that sort of thing. So I was allowed to go, got off the plane, stayed at the Tourism Hotel, as I mentioned, and had some interesting experiences. There are a number of um, guys sitting at the front of the Tourismo Hotel, you know, big, beefy, East Timorese guys and Indonesian guys. Some of them had red and white, red and white uh, rings on, which is the Indonesian flag, and we nodded as we went in. And you know, we go go about our business. I had to go and see the 
Red Cross person there. I visited a number of um, political people. I visited a number of all sorts of people. I see Robin over there. You know exactly what um, who we're visiting. But um, I've been there. I already mentioned the guy who first mentioned Larry. I was, you know, I was trying to get dressed in a decent shirt. And there was a knock on the door and there were a couple of young guys arrived and said, oh, in their best English, you know, we'd like to have a chat with you. And so I invited them into the room. <laughs> and which had a little lounge area and we and we sat down and in a in their Indonesian and my Indonesian as well they started talking about the fact that you know you may have heard things aren't going well here but in fact things are pretty good and all that sort of thing so we chatted away and then I said and they were a bit nervous and then I said well tell me you guys could be members of what used to be called Apodeti because we didn't have those groups there but Apodeti was the group that that supported integration with uh, Indonesia and, and they sort of look relieved and said absolutely that's who we are you know just realize it's not all bad so we had that chat and then I went out and saw the governor and everything else and visited a port the, the school which is next to Santa Cruz near the cemetery which we'll get to in a moment which was a, a school that taught in Portuguese still had maps of Portugal um, interesting school um, quite scared to to actually be interviewed by someone from the embassy the Turismo Hotel that I've mentioned was um, in 1975, a, a journalist called Roger East had been pulled out of his room and taken down to the harbour and executed on the, um, on the foreshore. Um, the governor at the time, Mario Carrascalau, who I met, I'll get to him in a moment, um, made sure that on my last night they'd have a, um, you know, put on a, a, a dance show, if you like. So they got some uh, East Timorese dancers who did um, Portuguese music, Portuguese songs, and and it was bringing in the, the the coffee harvest and things like that. But it was it was very sad because they had one tape left. It was a cassette tape, and and it had just about run out of run out of music and everything else. They're using a pencil to wind it up and and get it there so they could do this. So it's the sort of last flicker of some of the the more Portuguese dimensions to what was then the open province of East Timor within in Indonesia. Um, I did meet some of the Jesuits who were there and um, they were Indonesian Jesuits and they were in awe of the fact that um, there was this guy in the, in the jungle, if you like, a bit like the Phantom, and his name was Shanana Guzmao, and that the youth of East Timor were, were quite, um, would follow him anywhere. And they were concerned about this sort of, um, this, you know, he, he, he had a sort of, um, the sort of image of being able to turn it, you know, shape shift and do that sort of thing that he could come into the city, talk to people and then disappear into the, into the jungle. And that was Shanana Guzmao. Um, that's also taught me the importance of religion, I suppose, that I saw in East Timor that, um, you know, there was a population at um, some distance from the government. And we'll talk about that in a minute, in a minute, but um, the importance of the, various religious orders that work there and you know it's 99 percent christian catholic you name it every denomination in east timor and in this age where you know talk about um various things that go wrong with religion i mean i saw certainly the catholic church was an enormous force for good in east timor for the people of east timor it's all they had going for them and you could pick that up in 1990 anyway cut a long story short the next visit, sadly, was 1991, and it was after the Santa Cruz massacre. And those of you might recall that um, 250 people were killed in a cemetery 
next to that school I was telling you about. And um, the Australian Embassy uh, responded very quickly. I was actually, I can remember, I was having lunch with a BBC journalist in um, correspondent in Jakarta and she got a message and then we both got messages. There's been this horrible massacre in East Timor. And um, so the third secretary political uh, was dispatched straight away to go down there and work out what had happened and, and show the flag, wave the flag. I was the next person to go down. So 48 hours later, I arrived. The, the plane arrived, touched down, the, the gangway went down. My predecessor, the third secretary, was the first person up before we'd even got out. And almost Woody Allen-like said, I can't stand this. I'm glad you're here. I, I've got to get on the plane. I'm, you know, this is the worst place I've ever been. There are people, there's literally still blood on the streets. It was, it was awful. So I sort of walked into walked into Dilly and and stayed again at the Turismo Hotel. And um, post massacre um, post massacre nineteen ninety one, Dilly was obviously the, a, a significant change in what in what happened. But um, just to sort of look through that a bit, I did interview the the military commander of um, East Timor at the time, who was Brigadier General Waru. And General Waru, who was subsequently dismissed, uh, if you like, presided over that massacre. But he was very much what the military call the ter- in the territorial game, which was um, a traditional military, not so much anti the community, but you know the the two functions, the dui fungsi that they have in Indonesia, that it would help with development, that the people that the military there to help the people and all that sort of thing. And he was um, quite liberal, if you like. And under his watch, that liberalism met with a Portuguese parliamentary delegation that was coming to East Timor and the youth that were following someone like Shanana Guzmão and the people generally saw that liberalism and opportunity to demonstrate and they demonstrated and then they struck the other side of the military, which was very much the... um, the special forces and uh, the commander-in-chief, Teresa Trisno at the time, had had secretly, if you like, given orders that if there's anything, um, anything occurs that people could shoot to kill. And uh, there was a gentleman called Proboa who was one of the senior leaders of that um, special forces group. And uh, that's exactly what happened. There were, they shot to kill and 250 people were killed. And one of the things that really I found quite difficult was the fact that none of them went to the general hospital. They were all taken to the military hospital at the time. Those of us who, some of us I see here were in Indonesia at the time, Tempo magazine released some horrible stories about what it was like to be captured or taken to hospital and not all of them got out. One of the observations I have about that period is that, um, well, look, I've, I've time-wise I'll I'll go on because probably the most important meeting I had there I mean I mentioned the one with uh, General Waru who who was a bit stunned I suppose that that what happened and I happened to have some newspaper articles and so how do you respond to these and they hadn't even seen the newspaper articles in in, um, the military headquarters they were a bit amazed that the whole world was um, was looking at what was going on there and as I said it wasn't his doing it was very much the special forces but the next, the, the next person I saw was Mario Carrascalau, who was the governor of East Timor and a 
and a great governor of East Timor, a great protector of his people. And so I was there as a first secretary with a notebook and and um, he was, this was about day four after the massacre and, um, you know, who's sitting almost Lear-like in his office. Uh, I, I arrived and started taking notes as we're talking and it went for an hour, then two hours, then three hours. And I realised I stopped taking notes ages ago. And we had a long chat about East Timor, Indonesia and what had happened. And he was, he was constantly, um, obviously, very concerned about what had happened and what was happening and what was going to happen. And he said it was like, you know, he described the Indonesian occupation, if you like, as being offered a, a mango or a bunch of bananas and, you know, someone holding a gun to your head and telling you to eat it because you could see what Indonesia was trying to do, but there was this gun at his head at the same time. And then I said something, I, after four hours, you, can, you feel you can say it. Um, I said, well, look, you are one of the people who asked for integration. You were one of the, one of the signatories to the Balabo Declaration, which invited the Indonesians in. So he was the head of the one of the heads of the UDT party, one of the parties that that uh, Sue mentioned, and he had indeed he was indeed a signatory. He said, "Yes, I was a signatory to the Balabo Declaration. Yes, we asked for integration, but not like this." And that I think, if you look back at those debates that Sue talked about um, in Canberra, um, and people like Gough Whitlam and people like Dick Wilcott, who I can understand how they could come come up with a policy, roll it into Indonesia, it makes sense, it's a colonial relic, et cetera, et cetera, ignoring its very separate history. But, you know, it sort of made sense and we weren't going to put battleships in the, in the harbour as Defence said they might do, which wasn't going to happen. But someone like Dick has never apologised for taking that view. I think he agreed, he, he asked for integration as well, but not like this. And I think that's the excuse that Australia can use. We didn't expect it to be like this. Certainly the East Timorese didn't expect it to be like that. And a lot of Indonesians didn't expect it to be like that too. So briefly, so I can hand over to Brendan. Um, the next time I was there was the trial of Shanana Guzmau. And that was extraordinary to see um, Guzmau being let out. He was, he was, he was put on, uh, they captured him and put him on firearms charges, <laughs> possession of illegal weapons, and he got a very long term, which was subsequently commuted to 20 years by the president. But the sad thing there was, that, you know, it was a courthouse like something out of um, the Deep South, I think, almost in the, in the United States, and fans going, but Shanana would be let out, and his father and his family would be sitting there, and they weren't even allowed to look at each other. You know, if he looked up, some, something would be said, so he spent his whole time looking down. And he was used as a pawn for the next few years until his chance came again. And then finally, and, and I'll hand over to Brendan, the next trip I had was in 1993. There was a new governor called Abilio, who was a, no disrespect to, ex, to truck drivers, but he's an ex-truck driver, a very beefy guy and everything. And I've got to say, it was the first time I'd been to East Timor. I wasn't there after a massacre. There were no human rights, obvious abuses going on other than the usual, usual um, you know, lack of self-determination, et cetera. And the ABC correspondent, Ian McIntosh and I, who were there at the time, thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe they've got over that. Maybe integration possibly could work. And the governor um, suggested that Ian and I might like to have lunch at his brother's restaurant up in the hills outside Dilly. And so Ian and I went up to this 
basically a paddock up in the hills and um, had lunch and I ordered Portuguese beef. And can you imagine what beef is, how it's slaughtered up there and up in the hills and all that sort of thing. So we, we had this meal and, and um, maybe a glass of wine and I started getting a sore throat and um, that sore throat got so bad that it actually ended up seeing me out of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and into a completely new career. So East Timor, that lunch in 1993 was um, basically a career-changing lunch. But after that, I studied, I did a Master of International Law, as, um, as Ash mentioned. I, I looked at concepts of sovereignty for East Timor and came up with, a, you know, the obvious view that a, a sort of Puerto Rican-style um, um, loose association would work for a place like East Timor. About that time, Alexander Downer suggested to John Howard, the, the Prime Minister, that he should write to Habibi, a president in Indonesia, and suggest that an act of self-determination or a election should take, or a, or a vote should take place. It subsequently did take place, and um, overwhelming majority of people voted the way that, as Sue mentioned earlier, that um, certain people in the department thought they were. It's a completely separate history. Indonesia um, stepped back. We can talk about that at length. I, I'm sure. The special forces were trying to provoke a civil war. Um, the resistance forces stayed in their encampments and there was no civil war, but it was horrific what happened on the ground. And the, the last scene of that was um, when the Indonesians sailed off, um, Shanana Guzmau appeared again and, and um, basically, in military terms, took a salute. <laughs> from the Indonesians and, and wave them off as they left in 1999. So um, I'll hand over to, to Brendan, um, but probably just to mention one of the, one of the, if I was showing photos, one of the most poignant photos is a dying President Habibi, ex-President Habibi and Shanana Guzmau at his bedside and um, how, much, how, how much, how unexpected that was. I mean, you know, looking at, various forms of autonomy, various forms of how this is going to work and the Indonesians under uh, Habibi pulled out. And it's a stretch of Australian foreign policy of which I think we can be proud. Alexander Downer had a lot to do with it and the UN did a fabulous job. So with that, I'll hand over to Brendan. Thank you very much. Um, I'm assuming people can hear me. Just nod if you can. Can you hear me? Great. Um, that's... Um, this um, this such I, I feel um, such an honor to be able to participate in this discussion today. Um, I think our our role as, as speakers here is to talk from our personal experience. I think both all three of us can go into the the studies we have done, and you know, and, and like John, uh, also I've done quite a bit of academic study on the background and history of this place. But if I could just focus my comments on on my personal experience. And maybe um, then we can delve deeper into it in the Q and A. Um, so, so for, for me, I had joined the Department of Foreign Affairs in 1993, not really knowing too much about uh, East Timor, I must say. Um, and my first interaction was when in the department, when you join, you get as a as a as a graduate, you get into rotation. So my second rotation was into the Indonesia, my third rotation was into the Indonesia section because uh, I had voiced an interest to get posted to Indonesia, having a bit of background in the language. 
And although I didn't work on East Timor issues, um, it really dawned to me how much it had dominated, it was dominating at that period, Australia's bilateral relationship. Just to, to contextualize this, this was the period when, when this is in 1994, Paul Keating had become president, uh, prime minister, sorry, and he had it as one of his main foreign policy goals is to cement Australia's relationships in Asia, but through, in particular, the relationship with Indonesia. And notwithstanding um, Keating's really um, forward stance, you know, he, he took it on himself to build a very close personal relationship with, with President Sohato. Um, this pebble in the shoe, as they called it, the relationship um, with Timor was just, just burning away. I mean, I was surprised to see, I mean, at one stage for a period, I think, this is 1994, so two years after, three years after Santa Cruz. And Santa Cruz, I cannot agree more with John. It was a very, very seminal moment uh, in terms of turning the tide of opinion, not just in Australia, but globally as well. And the photographic image and the film that was smuggled out, you know, there was a, a famous uh, Dutch uh, filmmaker, Max Stahl, who was able to smuggle, you know, he was there and through various clandestine means got the film out and it was shown on all our televisions around the world uh, about a month after the, the, the massacre. And, and that really changed public opinion. But this is 1994. And, you know, I think at that stage, uh, across the whole government, it must have been for a long period, the, the, the issue that, that created the most number of ministerial uh, correspondence, you know, people writing to prime ministers, people writing to ministers complaining about this was campaign. Most of it was campaign mail, but, um, you know, true and, and people live through that, you know, who, who are more authoritative than I am, but, you know, through the church networks in Australia, through the political networks, the activists, the NGOs, there was just such a movement. And it really took me by surprise to see how much emotion there was in Australia on this issue. Um, I was going to Jakarta not to work on, uh, again, not to work on Timor related issues. I probably had the most boring gig uh, was to look at regional security um, and uh, ASEAN issues, um, like a bit like uh, a bit like you, Sue. They gave me, you know, I was like, oh, what are you here to do? Uh, and I had the, the win a windowless office in that embassy in Jakarta. You would be familiar with it, uh, John, in uh, Rasuna side. And I was doing, I was doing, um, you know, kind of uh, foreign ministry issues, international issues, regional security, um, and. And um, and not 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 really doing very much on on East Timor at all, or even Indonesian domestic politics. But then a few things happened. One, um, um, because I I made it a point to to mix a lot socially with uh, Indonesian people when I was in Jakarta. You know, I met some Timorese um, and took an interest, a personal interest. And and one of that Timorese is 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 you know now my wife. <laughs> Uh, who was studying in Jakarta at the time. Uh, so it was more a personal interest. I started, you know, mixing around with the Timorese, understanding them. And it was really quite, you know, it's when the personal and the professional kind of uh, commingled because I had colleagues who were dealing with some of, you know, my now wife's friends and relatives as, as stakeholders. 
uh, but I knew them as, you know, as, as, you know, my girlfriend's family. So I kind of took an interest and started reading up a little bit, following the reports a bit more closely. Um, and, you know, just started to kind of offer a view from time to time, you know, this is what I'm hearing, um, you know, at, at family get togethers and, and whatnot. Um, but uh, really quite a distant relationship with, with what was going on in Timor. Um, and, um, but a couple of things happened in that period that were really significant, you know, 95, 96. So 1996, uh, we were all at the embassy late evening and suddenly we get a phone call um, from um, a colleague, Andreas Vecchiet, you might remember him, John, who's saying, have you guys turned on the TV? And uh, what had happened was the Nobel committee had just announced uh, Ramos Horta, the activist then living in Australia and Bishop Bello, um, you know, the, uh, the, the bishop uh, that covered the diocese of Dili, uh, again, reflecting John's comments about the, the influence of the church who had stood up to try to stand up to the human rights abuses had won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and that, I think, you know, we were in Jakarta, we were shocked. The response in Canberra was unbelievable. Uh, it's like, how has this happened? You know, Ramos Horta and, you know, both Sue and John would have dealt with him. You know, Sue, you probably dealt with him as a young, as a young man coming through to Darwin, um, you know, and, you know, again, plus Sachons, as they say, he's just been elected president of Timor, you know, a month ago for his second term at the age of 72. Um, and, and so that, that saw, saw a shift. And I remember sitting there in, in, in Jakarta, and one of the things that really hit me was, okay, you had Santa Cruz, you had this, and we got a call from the Brazilian embassy. You know, the Brazil, Portuguese were not there in, 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 in Jakarta. Um, and the Brazilian embassy was at, at a loss because uh, the then president of Brazil, Cardoso, wanted to send a message to Bishop Bello and the Brazilians didn't know how to get in touch with him. They had not had no contact. They had no dealings in Timor as, you know, as Lucifer brothers, they had never taken an interest, but suddenly there was an interest. Um, and, and, you know, as a kind of a insider outsider, I was saying, okay, this is, this is quite significant. You're getting people, you're getting countries that are, you know, that had been not really been involved and starting to get involved. But to be fair, you know, I couldn't see a pathway to a change in Indonesia's attitude, right? Um, the only thing that was possible was the house sort of, the house of cards start to tumble. And, you know, during a regime change period, you know, the Sartre regime, and, and, you know, we sat around, we brainstormed, how is this gonna happen? There were voices within the Indonesian, the, the Indonesian policy elite, but they were very, very soft voices um, that were saying, this is too much trouble for us. Why, why did we even get involved? But they were so much in the minority. Funnily enough, one of the strongest voices of that was somebody called Devi Fortuna Anwar, who was an independent researcher. And, and she ended up, when Sohato did pass power to Habibi, she ended up to be Habibi's foreign policy advisor. And so to, to harken back to, um, to uh, John's uh, explanation about, about Habibi taking that decision, when Alexander Downer and John Howard um, 
suggested to Habibi that this was an opportunity, you know, while he was in the presidency to do something different. And they did, part of that process was to canvas the views of, you know, Timorese all around the world. And we had colleagues that went to, to Portugal, to Mozambique, to Macau, all around Australia and canvas views. And there was a report given and a letter given, and this is all public right by, you know, by now. And, and not, not thinking for once that, that, you know, what, what would happen next. What happened next was Habibi got the letter and instead of taking the advice and the, 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 the advice from the Australians was maybe you need a period of autonomy, the, the sort of new Caledonia model, which is promise a referendum because he said the international community and the Timorese were never gonna accept a, a status determination without a referendum, an act of self-determination, but you can delay it you can build up the trust, have a different version of integration, and then you know you have a chance of 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 winning the vote. And instead, and this is you know again you find yourselves in this position. I was in West Timor in Kupang with with the then ambassador John McCarthy. We get back to the hotel after being on the road in West Timor for a day and says you need to call back Jakarta. You need to call back Jakarta. You need to turn on the TV because Habibi got a letter. He had his cabinet meeting. And he had basically taken Dewi Fortuna's, uh, Anwar's advice and says, if they want a referendum, we're going to have it, and we're going to have it within the next six months. And that floored everybody. No one was expecting that. Uh, Wiranto was the head of the Indonesian Defense Force in cabinet. He couldn't get enough muster to say no. And it was, you know, those historical uh, opportunities that just, you know, you wouldn't have thought would have happened, just happened in, in that in that moment and and just living through that was quite incredible to see and you know and the fear of everyone you know what was going to happen with the military accepted and john alluded to what happened so i won't go into that the other just to, not in chronology 1997 um what was happening was suharto was losing grip with the financial crisis so i guess timor is a it's a site it's it's part of the issue of the Sohato regime falling apart due to the economic pressures and the, the historical momentum from that. But one event that, that was really impacted on me was um, Nelson Mandela had come to Jakarta in 1997. And uh, as you do, uh, you know, you, I rang up the, the South African uh, uh, embassy and said, look, uh, can we have a chat? I knew the, the third secretary there was, was a young Africana guy. And he said, oh, we had a chat and you know, gave me a background on the visit and all of that. And I asked him point blank, I said, oh, did, 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 did East Timor come up? Because, you know, Mandela had, you know, did speak about, you know, Timor from time to time. And his, his partner then was Grasa Machel, who was of the widow of Samoro Machel from Mozambique. And Mozambique had played a very important role in um, supporting Timor um, over the over the over the years, and 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 this young third secretary said, no, no, no. And then a couple of days later, I opened up uh, a magazine in 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 the office forum. Uh, I think it was Dutik, and there it was in 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 a black and white photo, an article, Shanana Guzmao having lunch or having dinner with Nelson Mandela. So what had happened was Mandela had asked Suharto that he wanted to see. Shanana from prison and 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 they had to 
you know, squirrel him out to prison and to the to the palace. So, so to, you know, the guest palace of of the of the presidency. And he had this lunch. No one was supposed to have talked about it, um, uh, but somehow or rather, it had been leaked to the media. And so that was another thing. You got you know this 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 is this is gathering momentum. Um, but very quickly, I'll just go through chronology chronologically just some some couple of events more. Um, the referendum itself, um, you know, a lot of, as I said, a lot of tension around that, uh, even, you know, what was going to, what was Indonesia's response going to be, uh, I was in the Indonesia section at the time, and there was a lot of nervousness about, you know, what the military would do. Um, there was, you know, in Canberra, similar to that time in 74, 75, uh, Sue, you know, the Indonesian military, were they going to accept it? Were they not going to accept it? They, you know, the Australian military had a forward plan to to try and intervene if, you know, if needed. And to a certain extent, not quite worst, worst case scenario, but one of the, one of the less best scenarios took place where they did, they did uh, scorch earth, uh, did uh, implement the scorch earth policy. Uh, for us personally, it was very tough because, you know, we had family there and uh, we lost contact with family for, uh, you know, 36 hours, you know, where, you know, where they went to. Um, and then, um, and also for me, another anecdote was I was working in the department in, in Canberra and, and I was eligible to vote, although not a Timorese citizen, because spouses were eligible to vote uh, be, because they would say, oh, there's Indonesian spouses as well and there's other spouses. So I drove myself off to, to Sydney to vote and came back the same day and everyone, you know, the Indonesia section and East Timor section was looking at the vote count and I said, yeah, I've just come back from voting. And they just shook their heads. This is, <laughs> this is, uh, this is quite um, unusual. But, but then the happy moments, you know, I mean, they, you know, as I said, it wasn't as bad as we initially thought. People came back, they struggled rebuilding, you know, the personal costs, you know, people losing their property and their, you know, their houses and having to rebuild and starting off independence on that sort of, on a rather bleak, uh, you know, infrastructure picture. Um, and, and then slowly, so, I mean, the, the, the people of Timor, you know, have, have voted very strongly because they knew what they were getting into. And so they, a lot of people go, oh, you know, wouldn't you know wouldn't Timorese feel that they you know they, they should be part of a, a better Indonesia today and Indonesia has changed a lot today a lot more democratic of course um, and 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 you'd find very few Timorese who would subscribe to the, that view um, and um, the, the 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 journey since independence and I got to go back there as as a, a private citizen and work there from 2009 to 2013 um, notwithstanding all the, the issues, the developmental issues, um, and including, you know, quite a serious police military crisis in 2006. If you look back on 20 years of independence, you, you have to give credit to the Timorese for, for learning some of the mistakes of, of their history and some of the mistakes of, uh, you know, other countries' trajectories and, and, and being able to at least develop some of their human capital um, apart from the from that period 06 07 it's remained largely peaceful um, the, the the negatives are you know if you want to put slightly uh, you know a more critical eye you know there's obviously a lot more could have been done in terms of education agriculture the dependence on the oil and gas industry uh, has been criticized quite a bit and, you know with due with due reason 
um, you know, but they can look back from 20 years and say, you know, um, you know, we've built a, a country with an identity um, and, uh, and, you know, the young people who have had the opportunity to study have been, you know, they're my kind of inspiration when I, when I deal with them. Um, you know, they're, unfortunately, they could be more, but, you know, they're multilingual, they're worldly wise, that you find them all around the world. You know, there's a, there's a, there is a community of something like 20, 25, 30,000 in working in the UK. Uh, they've gone all around the world to study from Brazil to Portugal, obviously a lot in Australia and New Zealand. And one fun fact to end, and I'm not sure whether you, you know, you know this, John, but um, there are today more Timorese studying in Indonesia than than during the Indonesian period because they, they're self-funded and they go for the education. Um, so one of the success stories of 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 Timor's independence is the rapprochement with Indonesia and the, the cultural uh, bonding that has taken place. Um, and um, and you know I've already gone over time, so I'll stop there and leave people the opportunity to 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 delve deeper with their questions. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan, John, and Sue. Funny thing with Zoom, I'll just let the people online know that Zoom, when it hears applause, just automatically cuts off the audio. It's some kind of noise or something. But there was some applause there. And on the question of podcasts, is there anything you'd like me to edit out of your um, <laughs> the pajama thing or anything else? Okay, um, we've got one question from our online um, attendees. Uh, is there? Any, oh, yep. Okay. Okay. Um, we've got a um, hand mic here. Yep. Sorry, that's all we have at the moment. Oh, thank you. Hello, Brendan, and thank you so much. <laughs> Sue and John, I apologize that I snuck in late and I missed Sue's comments. But since you get, since this is a night for sharing stories, I, um, so I'm Robin McClellan and I was, Amer I'm a, a retired American diplomat and served in Jakarta, overlapping with John and Brendan. Um, and um, my Shananas, my East Timor story, I never got to go there officially, but I, ended up, I was a munchkin of a munchkin of a munchkin in the US embassy when Madeleine Albright came to visit in 1999 and Shanana Guzmao was in um, incarceration in Jakarta by that point. And they had, he had had so many requests for um, meetings by visiting dignitaries that they, they couldn't, they didn't want the dignitaries to see the horrible prison. So they had put him in a small house near the prison. And so Madeleine Albright was going. And at the last minute, as I said, you know, as Brendan said, you, my portfolio had nothing to do with the political section. I, I wouldn't have normally been involved. But for some reason, I was put as a control officer, as, as a, an assistant to the control officer for the visit to the Shannon's house. So we all troop out there before Madeleine Albright arrives a couple of days before. There must have been six people from the U.S. Embassy and her security, her advance team and all that. And we get there and Shannon's has this, this tiny little house and he walks us through it and he like shows us his toilet and he shows us his who's two bedroom stove i mean he, he obviously was like why are you here nobody had thought about the fact that he wasn't going to speak indonesian he refused to speak indonesian which of course we all spoke and he didn't speak english so we had no way to communicate with him 
But luckily, Robin, Munchkin of Munchkin of Munchkin, had had two years of university Portuguese. And so I got to talk to Shannon Augustbaugh. And I went home that day and my husband said, stopped and said, wait, 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 I have to film this. And he got out the, you know, the old fashioned video camera. And so I have a tape of myself saying, this is the foreign service I thought I was joining. And it really was one of the highlights of my, of my career. He was, he was an amazing character, the, the myths, the stories, but in person, he was amazingly charismatic, even with only university Portuguese. Um, a little bit, I want to give, I want to also pull John up. If the, if the um, you, you said we looked at our phones in 1991, if the Australian embassy was giving their staff cell phones in 1991, you were way ahead of us. <laughs> Maybe she had a pager. Pager. Yeah. Anyway. And yeah, <laughs> the other thing, just of, I just on a more serious note, I also would like us to take a moment, you know, the Balibo five are so important in, in Australia's relationship with East Timor and the commitment, incredibly important commitment that Australia played in shepherding this through. But I also want to acknowledge Sander Tunis's death in 1999. And he was another journalist who was killed and his colleague um, by the Indonesian military, you know, after the referendum. It was very, very sad. Um, and I, you know, we, we look at what's happening in, in Solomon Islands and all these sorts of things and, and Sue and, and Brendan and John know this much better than I do. But it's, it is so true. Indonesia, uh, Australia so punches above its weight in anything to do in foreign policy in this region. And I'm, I really hope that can be maintained, that level of expertise and building the connections. Um, I, I just think it doesn't get enough coverage in Australia what an important role Australia plays in the role in the world. So, next. Hi, my name is Steve McBride. Um, thanks, everyone. I just wanted to lead on from a point that Brendan made about the student. So a few years ago, I returned from my, I think, second or third decade in Asia. One of the oil and gas companies that works in near East Timor called me in and said, Steve, um, you have had a lot of experience of dealing with the government, the Ministry of Energy in Myanmar. We think it's pretty similar to East Timor. I had no idea. And by the way, it was Aung San Suu Kyi's government. Although I'm from Belfast, I've got no experience whatsoever liaising with military dictatorships. So um, we brainstormed. They called in the, the Timor manager. We brainstormed a little bit. And, you know, I do a lot with the Society of Petroleum Engineers. And I said, look, there's not enough people working in East Timor to form a section. But the one thing that I did know about East Timor is that there was two or three universities there. I said, hey, we could form a student chapter. We got quite a lot of money in the WA section. Um, and so we could support it as a parent. And of course, the oil and gas company thought this was brilliant. Um, I went off, found some contacts, talked to find out that the, the current Minister of Energy actually is a former academic. And he would be really supportive of this. Um, but I guess the most surprising thing I found was that the majority of students were all flocking to Indonesia, as Brendan just mentioned. And this was quite surprising. I mean, perhaps not when you reflect on the cost differential, 
because um, the cost of attending a, a graduate course in Australia is probably infinitely higher than in Indonesia, for example. I just, you know, in my own limited knowledge of the country, I was very surprised. But I guess my question for Sue and John and Brendan is, if Australia cares so much about East Timor, should we not be doing more to try and attract students? And I would emphasize, I haven't actually explored other disciplines. This is really only in the energy area that I'm talking about. I, I can go very quickly and give, give um, so, so Steve, you know, thanks for your question. I mean, Australia has done quite a bit on the scholarship side. Um, it's very competitive. Australia has been very uh, active on the scholarship. I don't know what the latest is, but when I was living in Timor, it was about 150, 200 a year. Um, so that's that's quite significant for a small country like Indonesia, and um, and and I hope that those numbers have kept up. Um, um, and of course, you know more can be done. I'd like to see more the quality of the local universities improved. You know, you it's like you know that's bigger bang for your buck, right? If you if you improve the quality in situ then you, you're going to be able to educate more people across various disciplines because the investment in a single scholarship obviously is, is quite pricey. Just one of that, Steve, one of those interesting uh, facts. They, there are more um, students from Colombia studying here in, in um, Western Australia than there are from Indonesia. So, um, but I take Brendan's point about East Timor is coming down. I think it's probably a good effort. In terms of oil and gas, one of the things I'm interested in is, um, you know, one of the great debates um, over the over the last few decades has been what is the border between Australia and Indonesia and Australia and East Timor? And of course, we had that uh, Gareth Evans flyover with Ali Alatas where they're both shaking hands and they put these various boxes over and that of course you know was a lot to do with oil and gas um, and when Shinana Guzman was in Perth a few years ago and I got the chance to meet him there as well here as well he was talking about the importance of the third wave of the revolution if you like you know independence being the second one the third was that we need to control our borders and we need within those borders to be able to develop oil and gas. So notwithstanding Brendan's comment about, you know, the, the curse of oil, if you like, um, it sure can help build hospitals and do those sorts of things. So I'm interested in what, if anything, can be done to help, you know, whether that's production facilities in East Timor instead of in Darwin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I never really got to the bottom of it. Anyway, just a comment. That is the bottom of it. Yeah. That is the bottom of it. I mean, the dispute still continues. Now, Brendan's been involved in this too, but the dispute still continues about um, that it, uh, Timor wants really to own and, 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 and treat and deal with all the oil and gas itself and not have any facilities in Australia to get all the benefits, the flow-on benefits from that to have it in Timor. And the Australian partners say, well, hang on, that's not, that doesn't make sense. That's, that's really not the best way to go. If you really want the best return from your investment, then the best way to do it is the way that we've agreed already. So that, 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 that still goes on, that dispute still goes on. The, the, the border, the boundary, I think, has basically been, been agreed. It's not, not a question of dispute anymore. It's a question of what you do with the oil and gas. 
there's an online question here. You can all see it here. Um, someone wants me to someone to introduce themselves. I think that's for me. I might do that later. But um, uh, Penny Wesley Wensley, could Brendan or John comment a little more about the role and influence of Dewi Anwar for tuna? Yes. Um, thank you. Thank you, Penny. And uh, it's great to see you online. Um, um, Penny was my ambassador for a few days before I finished up at the Australian Embassy in Paris and then went off to join the circus in Mauritania. Um, the, I mean, I dealt with Dewi um, before the Habibi period. Uh, she was a very articulate and as we know, uh, academic. She had been trained uh, in Australia. She did her postgraduate work, um, charismatic and, um, and, and smart uh, and you know, bilingual, extremely good English. Her English is you know, better than mine. And coming from um, West um, Sumatra, the Padang uh, area, um, the Minang people, so who have very, very strong women personalities uh, and they, because it comes from a matrilineal society. And so she kind of evoked all that, you know, strength and, and both intellectually and personality wise. Um, and we, I, we love taking, visiting academics, people from the then ONA to go and see her and she'd be very loquacious. And, and, and one of the things that she always did was to say like, you know, Timo, we'd, we'd rather it be your problem than our problem. Again, as I said earlier in my, in my comments, it, you know, it was a very much a minority view, but what, had done, what she had done is she had associated herself with something called Ichmi, which was the Muslim intellectuals, um, kind of think tank association, which was built up as a counterforce to what was CSIS, like the American CSIS, but there was an Indonesian version that was that that had originated from a Christian Catholic student movement in the 1960s and had played a big role in encouraging the Indonesian military to participate, you know, to, to, to lobby for annexation of Indonesia. So 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 now you had this Muslim intellectual group that had different views and, and, and they, it played out both from a foreign policy, but a domestic who has influence perspective, because in Indonesia, the, in foreign policy circles, there was this, uh, there was this, you know, feeling through the sixties and seventies and eighties, this Catholic intellectual elite had been too influential in, in setting the agenda. And, and so to kind of product differentiate Dewi, Dewi for Trinanwa says like, actually it's not in Indonesia's interest to hang on, um, you know, on several accounts, you know, and, but also underlying it was, you know, kind of policy competition between this other group and other groups. And so, but not being tied to the military or very few military figures were involved in, in, that, in, that, uh, in that grouping. She, you know, she, you know, as an intellectual exercise, they were socializing this idea and then, you know, Accidents of history, Habibi ends up being, you know, the vice president at the critical time, you know, constitutionally becomes the, the president when Suharto resigns. And Habibi was the 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 the, the patron, if you will, of, of, of Ichmi. And, and so when he was looking for foreign policy advisors, that day we for Tuna and ended up being at that place at that time. And you could see the the, the track of her thinking and 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 
she was the one that received the letter from from in my understanding from 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 John Howard and you know wrote you know wrote the initial summary and you know what should be the policy response you know if, if you know for us ex policy makers you know we we do these sorts of things so that 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 is my understanding i don't have you know i've, I've pieced together the the thing and then and then she went on tv you know at that that that's that stage because that suddenly media was opening up in indonesia overnight and she went in media and expressed that view very openly on indonesian media so um, yeah, maybe that, that's that's a little bit more I can I can share about her role and influence in that particular period. And and I think if she, my own my own opinion, this is just opinion. If she wasn't there at that particular time, um, we might not have had that response from uh, President Habibi. Yeah, we just have time for one more question. Um, sorry, who was it with the question? Oh, Flavia. Thank you, Ash, uh, for giving me the floor. Uh, I'm Flavia Belliani-Zimmem, and I'm the commissioning editor for the Australian Outlook, and I'm also a lecturer here at UWA in political science and international relations. Thank you very much, Brendan, John, and Sor for an enlightening um, presentation, a very interesting overview uh, on the road that Istimo went until uh, they achieved independence. Very interesting, and with many anecdotes, I really enjoyed it very much. So my question has two parts. Like the first part, I would like if the panel is willing, it's a question. <laughs> so uh, if the panel could just um, comment or expand a little bit more, it's a question following a little bit what Robin and um, Steve have just raised a few minutes ago. The first part of my question is regarding Australia's role in state building when you're thinking about Istimo. If you guys, uh, if, you know, Sue, John and Brendan could just expand a little bit more like on the ground, what actually Australia has been doing even, you know, since independence in Istimo regarding state building and humanitarian aid. Um, and uh, the second part of my question would be reflections upon the current state of democracy in Timor, if the panel would be willing just to make some reflections like how Timor is moving forward, like, you know, as a democracy, and as well, if there is room um, to comment or give any notes regarding women's empowerment and women's rights in Timor. Thank you. Would you like to answer that, Brendan? I'll try and be brief. I know time is a, is, is a factor. So Australia did play a, a very, very key role post 2000 uh, in terms of its aid budget um, and what it did in terms of, you know, infrastructure support, soft and hard infrastructure. I think how effective it is, you know, I've got my own personal view, I think, and, and you see this now playing out with, you know, China, One Belt, One Road, you know, the different views on how you provide developmental assistance. Um, you know, so Australia spent a lot of money on scholarships, on, you know, training, on uh, support for institutional building. It was a period where Australia was not doing a lot in infrastructure. You know, you go through this aid policy oscillation through history, 
uh, I think we're turning a bit more now towards back towards the infrastructure. So, I, you know, so I think there was a lot done in, in that soft infrastructure space. And, and you'd find if you go to Timor today, you'd find a lot of people touched by, um, you know, that that significant um, uh, investment in, in human capital development. Um, but is there room for others? That's a question. Uh, room for other types of investment? Um, I think so. Um, in terms of democracy, you'd be surprised to think that Timor is ranked very, very highly in terms of how democratic it is in in uh, in, in Asia. And that's because it's, it's a quirk of history because Timor basically adopted the Portuguese constitution, right? And, 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 and how the, the, the parliament is elected and how the president is elected. So it's run by a you know, proportional representation system on a countrywide list. Sorry, I'm a bit of an election nerd, right? So a countrywide list, um, you, know, you, know, one, you know, one person, one vote, um, uh, national list, proportional representation, which now means, you know, there's only been one election where a party reached the majority on its own in the first election. Subsequently, it's all had to be coalition building. The, the election commission is very professional. Um, there is you know, very little stories about uh, electoral interference. Uh, the count is very transparent. Um, you know, the media is, is independent. It's not a very strong media, but they're independent. And, and so from that perspective, the mechanics of democracy Timor is like fantastic. Now, is the parliament functioning to hold government and ministers, various governments to account? You know, that's a question mark. Um, you've, you've seen, um, you've seen um, changes of government from, 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 you know, from the second election. Whereas you would have thought, for instance, you know, like if you look at South Africa, the ANC is so encrusted, the, the, the parties of independence, you know, takes many generations for them to, to lose power in one generation, Fretilin lost power, um, and then they've been in out, they've been come in. So, so you you have that, um, the, and then your the third question, women's empowerment. I mean, I'm not probably the best person to talk about it, but there's been a lot of uh, you know a lot of I, I guess aid programs and, and focus on it. You have very senior, you have had very senior ministers. Um, um, you know, who, who um, you know, or, you know, from, you know, from, you know, women ministers and whatnot. Is there a journey left? Is it, is it, you know, it is, it is still quite a traditional society, I must say, from my own personal observation and, you know, um, Catholic society. So is there more work to be done there? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I'm not an expert in that field, so I can't, you know, please, please don't take my comments as authoritative. Thanks, Brendan.